Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. The horrors of adolescence are something we all share. A sudden physical transformation that results in strange new urges and more hair. These teenage woes aren't too far away from what happens to monsters in horror films, who are very often emotionally stunted and or averse to quote-unquote normal sex, if such a thing exists. In this episode, Margaret Barton Fumo, longtime contributor to Film Comment. Michael Kresge, I'm editorial director at Film Society of Lincoln Center. Nick Pinkerton, contributor to Film Comment and sundry other publications. Examine a very special subgenre of horror, helmed by the bloodier Judy Blooms of the world. Here's the conversation. Well, thank you all for coming today. In honor of the release of Raw, which Margaret wrote a wonderful feature about in the uh, new issue, you can check it out. There's also an interview by Nicholas Rapold in there with the director, Julia Durkanau. Today we're going to be discussing coming-of-age horrors because, I don't know, Margaret, maybe you could summarize the film and reveal why that is germane. Sure. Raw is a cannibal film of sorts. Uh, it's a French film about a girl who's in veterinary school, and she comes from a family of vet- veterinarians who are also vegetarians, and she just has to go through all the hazing of school, and in the meantime, she consumes a raw rabbit liver, I think, yes. which incites this internal cannibalism that she apparently runs in her family. Spoiler, I suppose, mild spoiler. It is a coming-of-age film in that her changes parallel sort of changes that we all go through as young adults in college, and uh, at times the real horror is actually what she has to go through at school. Things that I found horrific that maybe other people would think would be cool or fun. (laughs) (laughs) But all the changes in the film are incited by sort of biological changes. And then she has to deal with the social changes that kind of fall around that. And her sister is sort of a big part of this. Part of what makes it interesting is that her sister refuses to help her through in any way. She just sort of leaves her to it. Up until really the very end where I think they kind of bond at the end of the film. You write about other films that this was sort of inspired by, but I've asked everyone today to bring two coming-of-age horror films because, you know, Changing Bodies, The Blood, The Blood, to quote Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood. What, were, what was your first one you wanted to talk about? We may as well talk about Ginger Snaps, yes. I think. <laughs> and I do think that film kind of nods a bit to Ginger Snaps. It is a 2000 Canadian film about werewolves. And it's about these two sisters who are very close. They're close in age, and they're they're very close friends also. And they have these, they exhibit these gothic tendencies. They dress like um, kind of grungy, sort of fashionable grannies, and they like to stage their own deaths a lot, like uh, for fun, a lot like Harold does in Harold and Maude. Mm-hmm. And also in a nod to some of those 1980s, like dark teen comedies like Heather's, the dialogue is very snarky and cynical. And there's also a a male character who's very much like a Christian Slater type character. But the real focus of the film is on the relationship between these two sisters. And it's not a particularly good film, but I'd say that along with Carrie, it's one of the, I'd say, standard bearers of menstrual horror. Yes. For sure. The older sister named Ginger 
is attacked by a werewolf immediately after she gets her first period. And then the changes that she goes through in changing into the side effects mimic those of puberty. You know, she grows a lot of hair all over her body. She develops these sexual desires that she didn't have before. She also transmits the werewolf curse to another teenage boy through unprotected sex. Uh, her change is shown as being dangerous, but also cool. You know, she becomes sexier when she's turning into a werewolf, and she eventually accepts it and seems to enjoy it and embraces her newfound sexuality. So basically, you could see it as a coming-of-age film in that getting her period and turning into a vampire simply parallels getting your period and growing up. Werewolf. Well, you said vampire. Oh, we're, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Werewolf. For the part about all the hair all over the body, then I guess a, a hairy vampire. Yeah, yeah, very much about. Yeah, otherwise, same thing. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything to say about ginger snaps? <laughs> I was watching art movies when that came out, man. No, you weren't. I was watching art films. You mean ginger snaps was not an art film? <laughs> it's not. That was not on my radar, and I'm not caught up with it. I'm sorry to say. I recall. I recall that it was. It was the favored body horror film of the early aughts by people who are into art film oh hands down hands down because like right? uh cronenberg really wasn't doing any of that at that time he'd sort of moved on to historical sex things it has all practical effects so um, you know from that standpoint it's something interesting i mean i i saw it i don't remember it very well and i do wonder even though one of the films that i brought is about a young girl coming of age i do wonder if movies about young women and menstruation coming of age appeal more to women who can identify more with them though i guess carrie is pretty across the board loved but i do wonder i think i remember watching ginger snaps and feeling like this movie might not be for me because well, <laughs> i mean obviously carrie was written by a man stephen king and ginger, ginger snaps was written by a woman yeah yeah so she got all the details in there do you feel a difference between those two like is it very obvious that one is written by a woman <laughs> ginger snaps is more period heavy I'd say. <laughs> it's a heavy flow, if you will. Um, they the address shower. it a lot more directly, you know, and perhaps because the, the writer had seen Carrie, uh, they talk more about the period. And yeah, it's spot on. Um, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this, this menstruation comment. Yes. Isn't it strange that like the progenitor of all these young coming of age girl body horror movies was Stephen King. But okay, but again like I said before, obviously, obviously when someone is turned into a monster, it is always about adolescence. Mm. I mean really, cuz it's like No, he, it's true, but like Carrie is so specifically about menstruation. This was his concept. He right. wrote this book and he threw it in the garbage and his wife fished it out of the garbage and said, "No, this is actually a pretty good idea. You should you should publish this." It was his first book. Yes. I just think it's interesting that this was the first idea that Stephen King ever had for a novel. Mm. Well, I, I'm always fascinated by that, actually. Of course, as you should be, as we all should be. I did, in preparation for the podcast, I did go back to the seminal work by Carol J. Clover, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Yes. <laughs> I kind of browsed through it, though, but that that was the first um, book of, incidentally, of uh, film theory that I read in college. So, And it's good. It still holds up. It's very psychoanalytic, but it's still a good book. And she writes a lot about the menstrual horror film. She writes more particularly about Carrie, yeah. but she says she delineates different archetypes that are in all horror films that she's looking at. Monster, the hero, and the victim. 
And in the menstrual horror film, the woman is all three of these characters. That she gets her period, which is this kind of monstrous affliction, but it also inevitably gives her this power. Can I ask what else makes up the canon of menstrual horror? Well, obviously, Carrie, because I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I rewatched it this week, and I was just struck by how good it is. (laughs) Just like on every level, just being like, the lighting is superb. It's very atmospheric and just... It shows, you know, the world of like the popular cool people and the the just subaltern redheaded Carrie White, who, you know, with her super religious mother, who is played by Piper Laurie, uh, the great what what of films I think undersung actresses. Who's I will say I read her autobiography and her virginity was taken by Ronald Reagan, and he never called her again, which is unbelievable. Which She's is got uh, places to go, people to see. He had to run off and, I don't know, be shitty to other ingenues at the time. But um, She no. had the last laugh, didn't she? She did. She got to... <laughs> I don't know what that means. She, she was, you know, she was she was in Carrie. She got an Oscar nomination for years before he became and the president it, of the United he States. He nearly became the president of the United States. <laughs> last laugh. Um, no, I mean, yes, Carrie She was is- a way better than he ever was obviously well pepper laurie is magnificent carrie is great i'm i'm never less than amazed and impressed by basically every shot in carrie um there's like you know the famous prom shot that took like three days to film that starts on the ballots being collected snakes its way around the room through the tables follows her up on stage where it's announced that she has become prom queen and then the camera ends up on a crane and goes up and it follows the cord as Amy Irving's looking at it to gets to the top on the bucket, yes. tilts complete 90 degrees, looks down at Carrie as the bucket's about to fall on her. It's breathtaking every well, single time. And there's also the great moment and it's like, you know, De Palma, the great student of Hitchcock, where it looks like they're not going to do it because she, the teacher who is sympathetic to Carrie catches one of the people who's in on the prank and pulls her outside and pushes her outside of the gym and then the actual people who are pulling the string are underneath the stage they pull the string carrie is uh turned on <laughs> she's she's transformed and the gym doors close and that girl is the only one in her class who survives and that, You're and that's amy irving that's yes. one of the things that I, I i find very special i suppose about carrie yeah as opposed to something like, say, Let the Right One In, which I thought was just utter hot garbage in both of its incarnations. Ooh. but Controversial. The fact that that sympathetic teacher goes up in the conflagration as well. I mean, it's a very clean film mm-hmm. in terms of the filmmaking, but in terms of ethically, let's say, what's going on there, it's very close to the reality of... I don't know, say a school shooting right. where it's not just bullies who are getting taken care of. It is one and all who but is teacher, getting. But she laughs at her. She does. She like. It's, but it's, it's, ima- as... it's imagined. Oh, it is imagined. Well, there's that there's that special like prismatic shot where she sees yes. everyone laughing at her. But then when that ends and the laughter on the soundtrack dies down, you realize that it was all in her head. It's a little ambiguous, but. I've always stood by that Betty Buckley as the gym teacher who has been the most sympathetic, kind ear to her does not laugh. In fact, when she first gets the pig's blood, there's a reaction shot of Betty Buckley where she looks, she starts to cry and she's horrified. 
you get into Carrie's head at that moment, and she envisions that everyone's laughing at her, and that's what happened. I mean, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Carrie has always struck me as being an incredibly disturbing horror film for the fact that there's so much sympathy to go around. There's so much love for her, first of all, for Carrie, for who's allegedly, you know, by going by the poster and the idea of the film, she's allegedly the demon, the monster of the film. Mm-hmm. Not only is she sympathetic, she's someone that you want to protect from right. beginning to end. Um, and then the fact that she kills people who have been kind to her, in addition to the people who are cruel to her, is one of the great mm-hmm. complex things in any horror well, and, film. And seen. I think in that in that performance, the Betty Buckley performance, you can see the empathy certainly, but you can also see at certain points her sort of repressing a frustration with this yeah. completely hapless person who has no defense mechanisms whatsoever, right. which I think is just very very true. You know, in a few brush strokes, that character is given a great deal of dimension. You know, not only the fact that she is this, you know, sympathetic maternal character, but the fact that she, like everybody else, has to reckon with the sort of hostility that total hopelessness brings up uh, when you're exposed to it. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example of of a I mean, a stage actress coming into a pretty small role and bringing a lot to it. Betty Buckley, of course, who also popularized the song Memory from Cats. That was Betty Buckley a few years later. I've always been, yeah, just really struck by how upset I get while watching Carrie. I don't find Carrie to be a fun experience. I find it to be aesthetically dazzling and enjoyable to watch on that level. But I I watched it a lot growing up. It was a movie, speaking of a coming-age film, I watched it as I was coming of age. I watched it a lot as a child. And every time I watched it, I found myself torn between viewing it as just another high school film and, and... and like a 16 candles type film or viewing it as a horror film because it almost feels like it's split down the middle yes there are the glimpses of her telekinesis you know that she has these powers but it's pretty straightforward until the prom scene so it's 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 kind of an amazing betrayal of the audience that it becomes this bloodbath i don't really think there's been anything else quite like that movie no yeah and again it's not just a matter of oh the bullies are getting theirs it's like this completely uncontrollable apocalyptic energy that swallows up everyone and everything uh, Margaret, what was your second film? A piece of utter hot garbage. <laughs> 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 Let the right one in. Oh. <laughs> Which I thought would be a perfect example of a coming-of-age horror film. It is. Yeah. Um, the Swedish film is from 2008 by Thomas Alfredson. About two kids, Oscar and Ellie, who uh, the latter of which happens to be a vampire. And they're both 12 years old, but... Ellie presumably has been 12 years old for hundreds of years, so her coming of age is more sort of settling into a 12-year-old kid as she grows closer to the boy, Oscar, whereas Oscar's coming of age is much more straightforward, traditional. He's shy. He's awkward. She teaches him how to stand up to his bullies. Uh, you're using the pronoun she. Yes. Well, I'm, I'll get into that. Um, <laughs> but we are, we're more than pronouns, but continue. We are pro-spoiler, too. Yes. Here which is good. She teaches him how to stand up to his bullies and he becomes more extroverted along the way. And I I was really drawn to the film uh, for the performances by the young actors. I think they're really great. I think they're very natural and fantastic performances. And the cinematography, which I love. There's so many beautiful wide shots in the film, especially like violent scenes where the action is just in the center of the frame. And then there's this quiet kind of creepy space on either side or wide shots where you have different, you know, things going on in different parts of the frame. 
I just like to zone out and watch that. And also Ellie's gender is the way they present Ellie's gender is interesting. It's a very good point of interest in the film. She initially presents herself as a uh, androgynous female, but then she says things to Oscar throughout the film, like, uh, what would you, would you still like me if I weren't a girl? Which we assume is because she's not a human girl, she's a vampire, but then we find out about two-thirds into the film that she's actually a castrated boy in a uh, quick reveal, it's kind of a sleepaway camp-esque <laughs> kind of mellowers, which would have been a good film to talk about on this podcast also, too, yes. I think. Yes. <laughs> is, is anything sleepaway camp-esque, really? <laughs> a quick shot of a crotch is sleepaway camp-esque. Without the with, without the Munch esque S- screaming, screaming. Oh my yeah. God. Oh my God. Yes. we can all see it in our mind's eye right now. Yeah. Literally, that you say that title, and that's the only thing I. Yeah, get. and then also maybe the guy, the cook, spilling boiled uh. water all over his, and the boils popping up. Anyway, anyway, but it's shown really just quickly in passing, and it doesn't appear to affect Oscar's feelings for her at all. And so the way that I like to see this, although it probably really just is on behalf of sloppy filmmaking. <laughs> but I like to see it as just, you know, very uneventful portrayal of unconventional, you know, gender relationship and acceptance of that. Mm. Why did you have such a problem? I'm not going to slag off on the <laughs> movie that she brought. It's okay. That's not what I'm here it's for. It's more interesting if there's a little thrust and parry. I don't want I, I I'm not I'm not fresh enough on let the right one in to feel that my thrusts would draw blood. Okay, I rescind everything I said. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> Michael, what was your um, Well, the first film I'm talking about is Bernard Rose's Paper House. Yes. Which is a really beautiful and strange and scary nineteen eighty eight film, British horror film. Bernard Rose actually went on to make Candyman, a terrific American horror film, and very different from Paper House. But um, regardless, I think two of the best horror films I've ever seen. Paper House is a coming-of-age film for sure, though it doesn't hit any of the the common beats, I would say. And what I actually, what I was thinking about what makes com- coming-of-age horror so interesting and different from other horror films, and I think it has to do with, though obviously there's a lot of death in them, from the point of view of the protagonist, death is not the fear really right. there's no it's actually living it's actually growing living and realizing these terrible things about your body and um, what could potentially happen to you and how it could affect other people it's not well whereas most other horror films death is the end death is the fear death is what motivates the film so paper house is especially strange because there's um it's kind of unclear what the narrative scope is going to be and where it's heading and why but it's about a girl in elementary school on the verge of puberty she's 12 she's 11 maybe 11, maybe 11 or 12 her name is anna it starts on her birthday she passes out in school um after doing this kind of doodle of a house and as the film progresses well, no, she, she passes out in the tunnel she passes out twice right she she fakes passing out the first time right. in school and then she ha- passes out for real later when she's playing in the tu- in a tunnel with a friend of hers um, and it's actually right after she starts to try on makeup and, yeah. and she, and she says early on she hates boys. I mean, she's still a little girl, but she has this drawing of a house that she does. It's very rudimentary, really just kind of a scribble. There's nothing remarkable about the drawing itself. She's not an artist. She's just a kid who does this doodle. And every time she goes to bed or passes out, <laughs> she 
finds that she's in this world that she's created, which is this barren landscape and this very strangely drawn, almost German expressionist looking stone house where the windows are all different sizes. And when she first goes, she can't, she can't go into the house because she didn't, you know, draw the proper way to get in. And then, so every time she, she's in the real world, she draws something or changes the drawing. And when she goes to, to sleep, it's there, it appears. And so the way that this, and this way this first works out is that she creates this boy, even though she says she hates boys, she creates this boy and she doesn't draw him legs at first. Right. So he can't walk. And then she has to, in real life, draw him legs. And it keeps getting stranger and stranger. And she becomes more and more drawn to this this non-reality and this and this um, fake person who well, she turns feels, out and might actually be also living in the real world. Right. She starts even to though feel, she doesn't know him. Yeah, because she because she starts to feel this obligation to set things right in this. Like she feels like half a god, half like this victim agent sort of a thing. It's like really strange. It's very strange. Yeah. So, and then the centerpiece of the film is this long, maybe 20-minute sequence in which she envisions her father and her parents are separated. And the details of that are very vague in the film. I, th- I mean, it's clear her parents are lying to her. Well, her, It's pretty, it's, or it's like, it's... It's clear that the parents are lying to her, but it's also clear that the, their drinking was involved. The father yes. was an alcoholic. He's maybe sent away from the family. So she, she has a, a fear of him, like a latent fear of him. So through this drawing, you could say it's very Freudian. She's, you know, working out these feelings, but they happen in this very intense, almost Freddy Krueger-ish way where she does this drawing of the father and she accidentally gives him a really angry face and he's, he's holding something that looks like a hammer. So he shows up silhouetted on the horizon and he, let me put it this way. Watching this film as a child is, is a, is a horrific experience. I, I loved it as a child, but every once in a while flashes of it just pop up in my head every so often. Um, and there's something particularly scary about this idea of a, of a father figure who you don't actually hate in your day-to-day, but whose very being has created such a rupture in your life that you, you picture him as like a, an ogre, as a blind, a blind ogre. In, the oh, yeah. dream, in a dream, he shows up with X's on his eyes and he's wielding a hammer and he's coming to murder her. And on top of that, I mean, the set design is superb. Every room inside that house has a different strange character and strange character as in detail not people because it's very barren and i I just find it to be this like fever dream of childhood i I mean the whole thing feels kind of like something you might envision while you have the flu and there's a there's an extended sequence where she's just tossing and turning in bed and the mother's mopping her brow and talking about going to the seaside when she's better because she she is floating in reality because the sort of the explanation in real life is that she has glandular fever and that's why it's like she's out of school for so long and she keeps falling. And that's why, you know, supposedly that's why she's spending so much time asleep or passing out. But then, yeah, it's just like how tormented that reality is because she is physically ill, right? Because when she's awake, she's always pining for her dad and like talking about how like, oh, I wish we could all be together and blah, blah, blah. And then in the dream, it's just all the horrible things about her father come you know, manifested in this one utterly terrifying figure that is hard for me to even think about now. <laughs> and, ta- yeah, um, and talking about it, it's, it seems kind of by the book or by the numbers, but it doesn't play that way at no. all. There's there, there's nothing easy or simple about it. And um, and again, it's, it's extremely haunting. It doesn't go in any particular predictable horror movie direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, she does. it is a dream. She does wake up. There are real world ramifications of what happens. But overall, I think the point is just that she's kind of coming into being as a pubescent, girl like she's she's realizing things about herself there's definitely a sexual 
angle to her relationship with the boy Mm -hmm. and the fact that she's constantly having to kind of redraw her relationship with him and figure out how to take care of him and um it's very it's very moving it's very scary i'm just now wishing that i'd prepared myself to talk about a movie that i know we share an admiration for which is dream child uh Oh, I, you know, but it's been so long since I've seen it that I wouldn't. Yeah, I, but I would approximately have to have watched it again. contemporary, and I mean, just yeah. to toss it off, sort of. It's funny tells that... the tale of Alice Liddell, I believe, mm-hmm. the Alice in Wonderland girl, and does not skimp on the more unsavory aspects of that, mm-hmm. uh, with some particularly poignant slash disturbing Jim Henson creature shop critters. I believe the last image is just the mock turtle alone in a sea of tears. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know the mock turtle is the opening image. Does he, re- uh, does maybe he return? The opening is the griffin and the mock turtle. Yeah. It's the very beginning of the film, and Alice comes For whatever up to reason, talk to that's them. the one that's like seared onto my brain pan. It may or may not be well, the closing image. What was the intended audience for this film? <laughs> That's a great question. Still unavailable same, on DVD. Same question, really. For well, except the Dream Child is pretty evenly split between a sort of by the numbers contemporary romance, if you recall, with Peter Gallagher, as and, what, and yeah, the, it's yeah, a flashback. Yeah. It, it's a flashback from a like, uh, I mean, not a centenary, but a big celebration of Lewis Carroll at the New York Public Library, and Alice Liddell as an old woman is taking a like transatlantic steamer over to New York, and you go between this contemporary story. And her sort of flashback to her relationships with the stammering pederast Charles Dodson. <laughs> I was I was actually wondering when you were sort of hatching this as a topic, this idea of the coming of age story as a or the coming of age horror movie as a subgenre unto itself. What did you stumble on as like the proto coming of age horror movie? That's hard to say, because like I said, I think when somebody's turned into a monster, it's always sort of like an analogy for adolescence. Yeah. I, always... I mean, I, I just, I was thinking earlier, I mean, it's, you know, Frankenstein yeah. is a big, awkward adolescent for yeah. all intents and purposes, and that's played with quite a bit in Spirit of the Beehive, yeah. uh, for example. Oh, yes, yes. The, a really, another really wonderful movie about childhood and coming of age. Um, I mean, even The Wolfman. I would say that I was a teenage werewolf is the one that kind of literalized that metaphor, right? right. I mean, Michael Landon yeah. is probably the one. I mean, it was, and then there was Which Teen Which brings wolf. us naturally to Teen Wolf. <laughs> to teen wolf. American Werewolf in London, too. That, that sexed it up a bit. Well, yeah. I love that film. But it's, well, it's, there's the young adult and teen coming of age, and then there's also the children coming of age genre, and they're, they're slightly different, I think. Well, I came here with in my satchel a pretty early instance of what Margaret referred to as sort of a child's coming-of-age story, very pre-adolescent, which is The Curse of the Cat People. Yes. Um, So wonderful. Mm -hmm. Such a wonderful film. The best. Which co-directed by Robert Wise and Mr. Gunther von Fritsch, but by sort of common consensus authorial or architectonic uh, mastermind would be the producer Val Luton. So good that David Bowie wrote a song about him. (laughs) (laughs) And to give a brief rundown, it's a sequel of sorts to uh, a Val Luton produced RKO horror movie from about two years previous by Jacques Tourneur, Cat People. Mm -hmm. It brings together some of the same personnel 
But since the original cat people did not belong to an era of grand serial storytelling. World building. World building. They didn't really leave the door open. So they created a sort of very new approach Mm -hmm. uh, for this second film. We are reunited with the ostensible hero of the first movie, um, who's Kent Smith, uh, regular in the uh, Luton horror films, who has married the sister of his love interest in the original Cat People and is now living in suburban Terrytown, where he has some kind of odd job building model ships. Um, <laughs> totally a job you could have. And they have together a, I think, six-year-old, maybe seven-year-old daughter named Amy. And she is a bit of an outcast. The opening of the movie, which is one of the more haunting that I know of, has her on a school outing where she's sort of transfixed by a passing butterfly. Uh, one of her schoolmates tries to catch it for her and just winds up smashing it in his hand and presenting her with the fragments of uh, the butterfly wings. So she stands a bit apart from her classmates. And she begins to, after wandering out around her neighborhood and having an encounter with a faded thespian of the mauve age who tosses her a wish ring, she starts to have these regular meetings in her backyard with a imaginary friend who happens to bear the image of Simone Simon, the deceased sister and the star of the first Cat People movie, Mm -hmm. which of course creates all manner of concern among her parents. And one one thing that struck me upon rewatching, now this is like all of the Luton horror movies done very much on the cheap and apparently among the sets used were leftover scenery from uh, Magnificent Ambersons, which is the house that belongs to um, Julia Dean and uh, Elizabeth Russell mm-hmm. characters. This is the faded thespian and her daughter she denies is in fact her daughter Mm. uh, which is a sort of parallel narrative to what's going on with Amy and her parents this all refers back to some undisclosed trauma that occurred when the uh, Elizabeth Russell character was a little girl but one of the things that the movie does so very well is just capture this sense that I think a lot of people have as a child of this of your yard your living room and a couple blocks around your house being an entire world, Mm -hmm. and particularly the way that the backyard is used. We see it through all seasons, through summer, fall, and into winter, and the particular magic of these transformations uh, is very, very beautifully underlined by some very complex lighting gags that are worked into the storyline. Also, I had never thought of it uh, in this in this respect before, but it's very close to, in some ways, a sequence uh, and a film, both of which are very near to and dear to my heart, which is the Halloween scene in Meet Me in St. Louis. Like you can draw a direct line <laughs> between these two these two movies. Uh, they seem to like exist in the same extended universe. Um, <laughs> Yeah, a surprising overlap there. Well, there's oh, a, sure. I mean, there's a brilliant uh, bit by 
the great former Village Voice critic Tom Allen when he's writing about John Carpenter's Halloween, and it's something to the effect of, you know, this is the movie that exploits the expressionistic potential of the Halloween scene and Meet mm-hmm. Me in St. Louis. And God damn it, he's got it right on the nose. That's exactly right. Uh, we actually, Meet Me in St. Louis could have been talked about today. I mean, 2D is one of the most horrific characters in movie history. And that movie is very clearly about her coming of age into being a monster. Yeah, well, well she has that Carrie-like rage, except only snowmen are the victims. <laughs> this time just, just as violent. Yeah. So, I mean, what goes on in this movie, which, I mean, was pitched as a sequel to Cat People, which is something more of a straight horror film, Mm -hmm. essentially a young girl's gradual reconciliation with parents who are trying to fence in her imagination and the drama is, is this family going to turn into the, you know, the Elizabeth Russell julia dean family i mean 30 years later mm-hmm. will there be some rankling problem that prevents them from interfacing as a family or are they going to be able to get around you know their hang-ups and that's you know that's the entirety of it there is i mean in as much as there's a suspense slash horror element it's that elizabeth russell gets it in her head that she's going to strangle this child who her mother seems to have more affection for than uh, she does her but uh for the most part it's very very invested in just exploring the headspace of a six-year-old exploring the imagination of a child and another thing which i really appreciated a new working my way through the the luton filmography is the little specificities, which are so strange, particularly movies of the 1940s, which tend to take place in a city. And with Luton, it's always much more specific than that. This is in Terrytown, <laughs> which is where Luton grew up. He grew up in actually Port Chester, but like Westchester County. <laughs> it's very, very, I mean, of course, it's shot on the like RKO lot uh, on Gower Street. But it's very, very invested in these little details, these little things, which you get, you know, in like Isle of the Dead. It's not just some war-torn anywhere. It's, you know, the Greek islands in the 1910s during a you know, conflict with the Turks. And that's very, very strange. And I think that adds a great deal to the sort of Sequency of the entire <laughs> and the this, entire affair. And the seventh victim, of course, has the strangest, most vivid, non-real Greenwich Village ever. Mm-hmm. I would say. I mean, I, I always think of that with eyes wide shut. These these fake constructed New York Village scenes. But I love the seventh victim. I mean, it's one of my favorite films. But the way that it paints that that neighborhood, that world, you feel like you're really only within a few blocks of this place, and you feel like you're kind of trapped there. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, yeah, the like studio shot movies of that period, they always love to use Greenwich Village because, of course, you don't have the streets just going off infinitely. And right. you can have the like squared off streets and you sort of buy it as New York. Right. Maybe because we're talking about the benefits of reusing sets, I will mention David Lynch's Eraserhead, mm-hmm. which is when it was first released, uh, some places did treat it as a horror film. And this was a film that, you know, David Lynch, uh, he was accepted to the first class of the a- AFI Institute. And it was very exciting. 
and he failed all of his classes. Mm -hmm. And instead of sort of continuing in the program, because David Lynch was trained as a painter, and really, I think if you watch his films, you see the influence of that and how they're framed and staged and you know the colors that are being used. But anyway, the brass at AFI were like, look, okay, just, just go off and make a movie. And what Lynch did was he very slowly assembled and shot this very crazy movie where he was building all the sets and a lot of the lighting equipment, a lot of the things that are just sort of used to actually make the film were taken from the back lots of these uh, studios, which in the 70s were just sort of throwing out like their big baby lights or their, you know, these wonderful, uh, this wonderful equipment because they didn't need it anymore. And I think that really contributes to the look of it. And the other big thing that contributes to the look of it, and this connects to the other film that I going to discuss is that Henry's world, aka Eraserhead himself, uh, lives in this, it's this entirely industrial world. And David Lynch is somebody who grew up in Missoula, Montana. He was a Boy Scout. And um, he's talked about, you know, when he was a boy coming to visit his, I think it was maternal grandparents in Brooklyn and just being terrified of everything in the city. And like, you know, the wind that comes before the subway train arrives and like a guy frying an egg on a Iron was just terrifying to him because he's used to like these wide open spaces and the beauty of the woods. And um, yeah, and just like everything in this world is sort of conspiring against Henry, you know, who accidentally uh, impregnates his on again, off again girlfriend. As we all know, this film was later remade by Judd Apatow as Knocked Up, but <laughs> Judd Apatow's version, you know, focuses more on like the woman who has to marry this, this ugly guy who's not as good as her, who has curly hair. Ooh. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> he's, oh, oh. <laughs> he's stoned all the time. What a kooky premise. Uh, anyway, she can't get an abortion for some reason. Anyway, uh, you know, Henry, he's out there in the world trying to cut up. He, try, he can't do very basic things that, you know, the head of the household traditionally does, like carve these tiny chickens. They're new. <laughs> you know, and when he goes, to, goes in to cut one, it just all this blood shoots out of the neck hole and uh it cites his his new mother-in-law and there comes a point where he's at home with his wife mary the baby is you know sort of fussing and she just gets fed up and she leaves him alone with their progeny which to uh quote her they're not even sure if it's a baby um and it's sort of this sperm thing (laughs) Like, really, that's what it, that also kind of looks like a dinosaur. Again, David Lynch made all of this. Well, you just found it. <laughs> I need to not just... That's the story. Um, just stumbled across that little oh. skinned rabbit critter. <laughs> and, um, you know, as he's trying to take care of it, he really can't take care of it. And uh, he takes its temperature. In one of the funniest moments of the film for me, he takes its temperature turns around and he, he he looks at the thermometer and then he when he looks back the baby is covered in this pox and he's yeah. like oh you really are sick <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> this thing is gonna die and then, you know the you know, so the, are you are you are you saying a razor is a coming of age horror film for the father or for the baby both <laughs> because the baby gains some agency in this thing too cock blocks him turns into like a giant it's bandages come undone it turns into like this giant monster that like torments him yeah so um i think it's both it's a horror for both a lot of horror films play with this uneasy comedy not just sort of like dark comedy but just sort of like am i supposed to be laughing at this or is this scary and the absurdism of course it's a it's a great 
great little movie. <laughs> I'll check it out. Sounds cool. <laughs> Thanks. It sounds weird, but cool. <laughs> like a cult classic or yeah, something. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Could one watch it at midnight? I don't know. I have a hard time staying up that late. I'll be honest with you. Um, I take to mention my other film because only because you were just talking about movies where you're not sure if you're supposed to laugh or scream or cry. I don't know all the different emotions one might have during Eraserhead. Mine is an interesting case because so it's Twilight Zone the movie. It's that very strange omnibus from 1983. The other segments that I'm not talking about, directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, George Miller, and of course John Landis in the most controversial yes. segment which we don't have to get into because that could derail the whole thing the Joe Dante uh, segment is what I'm talking about and uh, one of the greats it's great and it's also interesting uh, well you have to kind of talk about the the Twilight Zone episode that it's based on first so there's a 1961 episode it's a good life is what it's called and it's very well known at this point it's parried on the Simpsons trio of horrors it's that one where the kid gets everything he wants and I love this episode, and I've always found it to be pretty amusing, but at the same time, genuinely terrifying. I mean, mm-hmm. the idea of that episode is is endlessly powerful and strong and political, and I've always kind of known it on a theoretical level, but I watched it again last night, and in the era of Trump, <coughs> yeah. it has new resonance. I mean, it's it's basically the story of a an angry, pouting, omnipotent six-year-old who just stamps his feet and gets what he wants. And, and he has the power to make people disappear if he doesn't get what he wants. It's supernatural in that case, but it's very clearly Rod Serling's political statement about yes. dictators. Mm-hmm. I found it very powerful this time and funny and scary again. I mean, one of the first things the kid says is, gopher, be dead to this animal that you don't see off screen and you can just imagine what happens. And this is before you really know what's happening. Mm-hmm. So the, the conceit of it is you don't really know what's going on, except that everybody who comes to the house, and in the Twilight Zone episode, it's, in a, it's a house near a cornfield. And, um, and, and everyone who comes to the house has to be on their best behavior and have to keep telling Anthony, the little boy, it's good that you did that. It's, it's a good day. Everything's so great. It's great that you did that. That's really fine, Anthony. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why is everyone always so happy and encouraging this kid who seems to be kind of a brat? And then you gradually realize he can do anything with his mind. He imagines something that happens, culminating in um, this alcoholic uncle of his getting transformed into a jack-in-the-box, mm-hmm. which is not as funny as it sounds. No. <laughs> so anyway, Joe Dante remade this for his segment of the Twilight Zone movie, Omnibus, and he updated it in his very Joe Dante way, which was to make it very cartoon-ish and have Looney Tunes very Looney Tunes and to to kind of enter the mind of this child which is addled by television Mm -hmm. which is sort of an interesting um, variation right not only is this kid really powerful but he's been warped by constant overstimulation Mm -hmm. and overexposure to television and and cartoons so the house in this version is is um, it's this isolated Looney Tunes looking house it's like the one you always see when you hear oh be it ever so humble music there's no place like home it's it's that house it's this big victorian pink thing and the the mother and father they have their perfect apron and sweater vest and everything is just fantastic and wonderful and he has this sister who seems a little off and she's played by nancy Nancy cartwright Cartwright, the voice of bart simpson eventual voice of bart simpson years later this is another one of those um, things where I, I watched it as a child and I was so completely horrified that I had to keep <laughs> watching it over and over and over again. It has famously um, the sequence where 
the camera uh, descends. You see, you see a girl uh, watching television, and the camera descends, and you realize that she has actually no mouth in a very startling special effect. And the, the idea being that he has taken his sister's mouth away, so she can't yell at him anymore. Um, it has the rabbit in the hat trick done by uh, the wonderful Kevin McCarthy mm -hmm. uh, in one of the tensest <laughs> scenes in film history in which the child makes his uncle do a rabbit trick and you don't know what's going to come out of that hat once that hand goes in and it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Why, I br why I bring this up is because it, the transition from the Twilight Zone episode to the feature is what makes it into a coming of age story. There's, there's a pretty drastic change in Dante's version which is that the there's a Kathleen Quinlan character who we kind of see everything through her eyes and she comes to the house and slowly comes to realize what's going on and she somehow is able to harness his powers for better she at the at the end of all these this episode all these horrible things have happened um she even agrees to take him away and help him learn and teach how to use the powers for good and the, the way that she does this is by having him talk about his feelings <laughs> and why he actually doesn't like being omnipotent it's um the boy's a little bit older in this version too he's on the verge of puberty as opposed to a little little child so he has a little more self-awareness but it's an it, it for me it's the, the ending of that has always been kind of a cop-out it's just such a disturbing idea and i don't see any way of making a happy ending out of this but by doing that, they actually made it into a fairly interesting coming-of-age story. So it's very not Twilight Zone at the end, but mm -hmm. it's also kind of the perfect coming-of-age film. Maybe he wishes that he, she comes. Maybe he made that happen with his mind. Maybe. <laughs> it's, that's a good point. Also, one of, the, one of the great changes in the adaptation is that you find out through dialogue that nobody in that house is actually his real family they're all right they're all kidnapped and being held hostage and forced to play roles well how the hell are we gonna follow that up oh i know i'll bring up my uh <laughs> film alice sweet alice uh -huh. so alice sweet alice it's actually pretty hard to see i saw it on tcm they do these like you know late night spooky or sort of underground movies now and um Sheila O'Malley wrote this really wonderful piece about Alice Sweet Alice along with the Night Digger for the website and I highly recommend you check it out and a lot of people sort of see this as like a um American Jallo it was directed by Alfred Soule and co-written by Rosemary Ritvo and this was her first and only screenplay, screenplay, but she really, you know, focuses in on the details of the Catholic Church and, you know, uh, certain characters. They're sort of bound by their Catholicism. And basically, it's um, Brooke Shields' first film. And she plays Karen, who is Alice's younger sister, who's this, very, you know, Karen is the sort of the sweet, perfect sister. And she dies in the first five minutes in this really gruesome way where she's lining up to get um, confirmed in her little white veil and somebody wearing a plastic, a yellow plastic raincoat and it, this weird translucent mask of a, a woman's face where it's this bright red lipstick and giant blue up to the eyebrows eyeshadow pops out of nowhere, strangles her throws her in, I guess, a pew, some sort of wooden box in sort of the back of the church and sets her on fire. And um, it's super, they show like the autopsy photos in the film, which are super gross, of Brooke Shields' burnt up little body. 
and yeah, it's it's so everyone because Alice is you know the older sort of more messed up sister. They assume it's her because she has a yellow plastic raincoat that looks exactly like the one the killer wore and she also likes to wear the same mask the killer wore and you know she's had problems at school that she's sort of been flagged as a troubled child and um her parents have divorced which is you know big taboo at least back then for catholics and so her father comes back and tries to help comfort her and figure out what happened to karen and um there's a scene which shows just like the most realistic sleeping with your ex scene of all time like the parents just sort of like are stressed out and then they fall into like this old rhythm and it's like yeah there's just like a lot of honest things in this film that make it just so bleak and um one of those I can't help but mention is uh this guy who is like their landlord or just sort of collects the rent for them he's this gigantically obese guy who is also possibly a pederast he likes to and he has a ton of cats that he refers to as his babies and a fun fact about him he was not a full-time actor he also worked at a bouncer at a gay bar in patterson where this was shot and he also liked to dress up as a priest and uh bless people at cemeteries for cash so (laughs) he brings he brings a lot to the role that's what i'll say um the film was always sort of keeping you guessing but always keeping you super uncomfortable and at the end you know the final shot is of Alice standing at the back of the church and just like the look of utter despair and brokenness and it's like well she wasn't messed up before she's definitely messed up now it's pretty devastating and it's a film that's definitely about what people's expectations of you and you know trying to come of age when everyone um, every member of your family assumes that you're utterly terrible anyway well, Violent, I'm glad you brought up the Mother Church, which teaches us, by the way, that no one is irredeemable, because it brings us right into my next film for discussion, which is George A. Romero's Martin. And it occurred to me while rewatching it that this movie actually interfaces in some interesting ways with the original Tornor, Luton, Cat People, because they're both movies over which the shadow of old world superstition looms long in the new world. Uh, In both cases, we're dealing with central characters who have some connection to European folklore that continues to haunt them and dog them in their modern American lives. In the case of Martin, it's the eponymous character who's played by a Pittsburgh actor called John Amplis, who's a sort of wiry guy with uh, longish hair over the collar, has a sort of Mick Jaggerish quality about him. We first encounter him, however, on an overnight train going from Indianapolis to Pittsburgh, and it's very evident that what he lacks is any kind of Mick Jaggerish sexual confidence, because in our, our first encounter with him, he busts into a woman's sleeper car, a young woman, and proceeds to vampirize her. And there are a couple of things that are very remarkable about the way this is handled. First, the fact that though Martin fancies himself a vampire, he has no fangs whatsoever. Uh, He uses a safety razor, slits the wrists, and feeds that way. Secondly, 
it's an extremely excruciatingly awkward assault. Uh, this is you know no suave Bell Lugosi coming in through the window. It's pure force trying to restrain her with a sedative. She's shrieking, fighting back the entire way through. You really follow the entire thing blow by blow from her you know, cries of rapist asshole to his whining and wheedling and her finally succumbing to drugs. And the entire thing is just sordid and sad and awkward and protracted. Yeah. Um, and about as far as possible from like a Dario Argento-ish set piece. So anyways, this having set the table, the train arrives in Pittsburgh and our identification character, I suppose, Martin gets off the train where he's greeted by a Lithuanian relative who looks like a great grandfather but identifies himself as a cousin. As it transpires... Uh, both Martin and this cousin believe that Martin is 80-some years old, despite looking to be not older than 19 or 20, uh, and that he is the most recent in a long line of Nosferatu in the family. And this cousin is bringing Martin into his house in the down-on-its-heels steel town of Braddock outside of Pittsburgh with the intention of redeeming his soul and then putting a stake through his heart. What also sort of ties this into the original cat people is the ambivalence that's kept up throughout as to if the supernatural aspect of the story is in actual fact something going on or is only in the heads of certain players in the film, in this case Martin and his cousin. We never get any evidence that Martin can do anything that we traditionally associate with a vampire. He doesn't transform into a bat. He struts around in broad daylight. He takes a big bite out of a clove of garlic. Uh, the crucifix has no effect on him whatsoever. What we do see is that he lives in mortal terror of adult sexuality in general, in every manifestation that he encounters it. And there's every temptation to think that his hang-up is a purely psychological outgrowth of this and the fact that he has been raised in a family where this legend looms so large. But we never get any answers whatsoever. What we do see, finally, is Martin getting an enormous stake rammed through his heart after a housewife who he's taken up with commits suicide and his cousin believes this to have been Martin's doing. Though, in fact, he's done most of his hunting back in Pittsburgh, uh, vagrants, uh, a woman who he catches at the supermarket, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. A couple things that stay with me and have always stayed with me uh, about this movie, which I think may be Romero's very finest, I think it comes between Dawn of the Dead and the Crazies. Mm. His technique at this point is just so lubricious. <laughs> and like, if there's a better cutter through the 1970s, I really don't know who it is. And he cuts a lot, a lot, a lot. But there's 
it's it's just so seamless it moves like a dream it really does the central performance is about the most it's a very difficult character to empathize with especially given the introduction but Amplis does to a certain extent make this happen mm-hmm. and also just i mean to go back to what i was uh, saying earlier about uh, about luton like the sense of place that you have here and you're a long ways away from the studio system now you're in this wonderful too brief period of the late 60s and 1970s where you're seeing a lot of location shooting in a lot of places that were not before or after uh, ever really done justice on film. In this case, Braddock, which, I mean, by 1976, 78, was already hemorrhaging population as it would continue to do so. It was parts of uh, that awful movie The Road were shot around there (laughs) fairly recently and it's also the stomping ground of Tony Buba Mm. a fine documentarian in his own right he's made several films about it but just the sense of just exhaustion and foreboding that is built into this movie with the looming I believe they're the Monongahela Mountains with the rusted over railroad trellises with these big hefty like Victorian boarding houses which are starting to sort of close in on themselves Mm -hmm. it's a really really vivid it it really brings this to you it really does yeah so that's my monologue about (laughs) Martin Uh, immortalizing that great soft sell song Yes, and I don't know if it, I mean I don't know if it really counts as a coming of age story. I mean he manages he, he manages to he manages to have like sexual relationships with a woman who he hasn't drugged, mm-hmm. which is a step. <laughs> <laughs> he never. It's always special when a boy can do that. Yeah, yeah, and I mean throughout he there's this sort of running relationship that he has with a sort of late night call in radio show uh, where he becomes something of a local celebrity because he's, you know, he's basically like a whack pack like <laughs> dude who's like calling in and dishing about his like sexual problems mm-hmm. and, you know, his squeamishness towards basically everything to do with adult relationships. So he does, you know, make some baby steps, but... Uh, you know ultimately is undone as is simon simon and cat people by this you know this very hard framework that he's you can change the software but you run the same hardware right and like he he just can't get past it and so the stake goes in the chest mm-hmm. a great metaphor for family mm. society what have you mm. <laughs> we all play our roles and i mean <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very much like steeped in this specifically Lithuanian Catholic milieu, which is what Romero comes from. Mm-hmm. It's, I think Spanish Cuban on father's side and Lithuanian on the mother's side. He's in his backyard. I don't know that he ever bettered that film, Dawn of the Dead's not too shabby (laughs) so good it would be great if we could each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked the film that i saw recently rewatched was agnes varda's 
the creatures. I was on the film spotting podcast as sort of like the Varda expert. And um, I did that thing where you like prepare so much that you end up sounding like you're completely unprepared because you're just talking <laughs> nonstop in an incoherent way. Only you can understand. So sorry. Um, but yeah, just rewatching it um, and really appreciating, you know, what she's doing there. Just being, she, it's it's like one of those great satires that doesn't play the rule of like, how satires are supposed to be made, right? Where, you know, it opens with Michelle Piccoli and um, Catherine Deneuve speeding along this beautiful stretch of highway by the ocean and he's driving really fast and she keeps saying, don't drive so fast, don't drive so fast. And he's like, oh, come on, it's great, we love each other. Uh, And then they get into a car accident. And it's like, well, of course, like you think, oh, this is gonna be a terrible movie. And then you realize, oh, it's just making fun of that conceit of a woman sort of nagging and then something terrible immediately happening to this beautiful young couple. It's got elements of Alan Renee in there and it's got, you know, her own sort of funny sense of humor. And I feel like it's very much tied up with her previous film, Le Bonheur, uh, Happiness, where that was also sort of about this uh, very docile woman getting kind of trampled over by uh, her husband because she loves him too much almost. There's a moment where uh, this woman who's having an affair with a doctor, she owns this seaside hotel, this light gets switched on, let's say, and she starts not behaving like herself, and she starts taking off her clothes and letting this guy fondle her in the middle of the restaurant at her hotel, and um, then the light gets switched off, and she's just like horrified she feels horribly violated and it's this thing that's like a joke at the time like it's played totally for laughs in the moment but then every time it's brought up afterwards it's this thing that drives her lover away from her doing things with movies that you're not used to doing and so it's like i understand why people are like ugh. but you know i don't think uh not everybody has the balls to do that so props to varda I recently watched for the first time summer stock which is uh, judy garland gene kelly musical of the 1950 so it's right in that sweet spot where gene kelly is becoming a star and judy garland is becoming something less and um it's that's grotesque well i mean it was it's a very difficult time in her career and you know if you watch anything between with judy garland between you know 46 and 1950 that she's going through a lot of serious personal problems and Mm -hmm. Uh, physical problems so it's always interesting to watch her and see how she's soldiering through movies in this case she she's almost convincing that she's having an okay time on set (laughs) um this is a this despite the title it's not about um actual summer stock theater it's it's, it takes place on a farm g garland's a farmer trying to figure out a way to make ends meet and she's running the farm by herself and gene kelly is the head of a troop of theater folk who come to town um, and they're going to use her her barn to stage a show. It's it's you know like a lot of put, let's put on a show musicals. It has mm-hmm. barely any plot. It's just a see excuse. now you're losing me. <laughs> I think it's I think it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> what happens in summer stock, and it is the it's the film where Judy Garland performed "Get Happy" in her in her tiny little miniskirt. Always a great song title for Judy. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I really enjoyed it. I, I despite all of the the weirdnesses, Gene Kelly is absolutely delicious in it. <laughs> in his in his gingham short sleeve button down, I enjoyed him very much. There's a Tumblr called Gene Kelly's Butt. I if know. you want to learn more about Gene Kelly's physique, I, check it I, out online. I know that Tumblr very well. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? I saw a terrible pilot for a 
television show that never was. I thought it was still worth um, talking about in the podcast. So. Sure. It's called Puchinski. <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just saw it. <laughs> the room just. <laughs> with the voice expl- of Peter Boyle. Yes. yes. <laughs> they showed me Puchinski. I just oh, saw yeah. it. I just, yeah, I just saw it on you. You could watch it on YouTube. <gasps> Please it explain is, the concept. Yeah. Puchinski is. Uh... <laughs> we all just shot to life in the room, by the way. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, Peter Boyle <laughs> plays a detective in Chicago who <laughs> he's Polish right yes yeah, <laughs> I think it's Stanley Puchinski I'm not sure <laughs> but it, that's his name off the bat and um, first he saves the life of a uh, English bulldog which is not the type of dog that you just see in the street but anyway he saves the life of an English bulldog <laughs> Then he is killed in the line of duty in a car accident, but there's a criminal involved. And his soul, I suppose, is transferred into the body of the English bulldog. What happens to the dog's soul, though? I know. The dog's soul just goes off. Like, it's just... He just, just gets bumped. dissipates. I know. Dogs have no soul. This is horrible. I don't so like where this is going. Puchinski is reincarnated as the bulldog, and he carries on as the partner of his former partner and they need to avenge his death first and then i suppose if the the show was picked up then they would have solved more crimes <laughs> but that unfortunately never happened and the most notable thing about puchinski is that the dog at first is a real dog yeah <laughs> And then when Puchinski is reincarnated, it is a this grotesque puppet. <laughs> there's um absolutely grotesque puppet. There's there's a there's a scene where the puppet uh, bites a criminal on the cock and balls. Yes. <laughs> I didn't like that at all. And also a moment of soul searching where he looks in the mirror and says in the voice of Peter Boyle, look at me, I'm a dog. It's heartbreaking. I think the puppet is grotesque because it's expressing his inner turmoil. It's very expressionistic. So I just had to bring that up. Do you think the Puchinski (laughs) puppet's still out there somewhere? Oh my God. Somebody paid top dollar for that. (laughs) It actually could be seen as a coming of age horror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. Things full circle. Sure. Yeah. With is, it, own... is it a minstrel horror, Puchinski? <laughs> <laughs> Look at me, I'm a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Try and follow that up. I can't. I can't. <laughs> well, since I since I feel like I'm always in here uh, like talking about Moybridge uh, photos and <laughs> Like magic lantern slides. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> you got to see this new zootrope. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd try to keep it contemporary this time. So the movie I wanted to mention is a new feature by a young man called James N. Kynitz Wilkins. Oh, uh, yeah. He's seen public hearing. Or, mm-hmm. um, who's I've been following with some interest for a few years, and I happen to get, for a piece that I'm working on, I happen to wrangle a link to this this new feature common carriers which is going to be at cph docs i think this weekend will have played by the time this airs and i just absolutely loved it i mean the premise briefly is that it is 
a series of conversations between various people who moonlight in creative fields or perhaps moonlight in uncreative fields and do other things on the side, in some of which Kainitz Wilkins himself appears. What is most, I suppose, noteworthy about it is that the entire movie or almost the entire movie is done with two images overlaid. So the entire thing is made up of overlapping images. Sometimes it'll be a shot reverse shot set up in the same frame. Other times the difference between the images will be very slight. Other times you'll have two completely disparate things going on at the same time. And it's always interesting, but seems to be sort of floating off in a dozen different directions at once. But he has this marvelous ability to kind of casually lay out all of these strange little disparate elements and all at once, seemingly effortlessly, pull everything together. And that happens, or at least most notably or most jarringly occurs during a scene. I should say briefly that there is a sort of ongoing white noise of radio babble that comes in and out uh, between, and it is sort of evenly divided between WNYC and Hot 97 broadcast. <laughs> and at one point you get this montage which takes us through quite a few of the characters we've met thus far in a very short period of time that's set to a young MA freestyle and it's so good. <laughs> I was watching the like Vimeo link in, in my apartment and I swear to God like I like fist pumped during it. I was like <laughs> fuck. <laughs> that's great man. Which you know that's. Uh, so that's what great cinema does. Yeah yeah and I mean this dude is such a comer like I've been so impressed with the like rigor and intelligence and humor and complete lack of obeisance to any, you know, any kind of familiar dogmas and just how like out there everything that I've seen of his has been. So this is, it's just great. As is, I should say, Mediums, which is going to be playing as part of the Whitney Biennial Film Program. Mm. So yeah. Now that we're all pumped up thank you all for coming this was spooky as hell <laughs> you've been listening to the film comet podcast produced by violet luca and nicholas rapold and edited by michael odmark you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes stitcher or google play film comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the film society of lincoln center since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>